it's an obvious truth, but it's one we easily forget, is that the church is incredibly important to God. We, we can't underestimate that the church is incredibly important to God. So much so that Jesus poured out his blood to redeem us and to claim us as his own. So much so that he's going to come back for us and take us to be with him in heaven. This church, Holbrook's Evangelical Church, is incredibly precious to God. And so it's mega important not just to simply attend a local church, but to be a part of the local church. It's essential. We want, we want to encourage you today. If, if you come here regular and you love Jesus and you can agree with his church's statement of faith, talk to us about becoming a member of the church. We usually spend time getting to know each other a little bit, but it's really important to belong to a local church. Paul talks about the church as a, as a body with lots of different parts that are all united. The church is essential to belong to a local church. We're not just Christian stragglers on our own. And the problem the Corinthians got is that, that they're in danger of destroying the local church. They're in danger of killing the, the local body. They were arrogant, proud, rude, entitled, unloving, promiscuous, clicky, show-offs. There, there wasn't unity there. There, there were a load of people doing what they wanted to do. And in the midst of all that, there was grace at work. People were still being converted. God was giving gifts to people to be, to be used in the church but people were misusing the gifts. This church that was so precious to God was in danger of collapse. It's hard to be in a church in a society, isn't it, where, where God's not honored. It's hard when, when we're increasingly, we're coming from different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different church backgrounds, different social backgrounds. And so Paul, he writes with the authority of being an apostle. It's not just, this is not just Paul's advice. Paul's words are God's words. And he deals with loads of the issues that are dividing the church at Corinth. And the longest part of his teaching is how they should behave when the church gathers like we're gathered this morning. It's crucial to the, to the well-being of the church how we behave when we gather as the church. So today we're at, the, we're at the business end of this teaching. We, we've, we've gone from chapter 11 all the way through to at the end of chapter 14. What does it look like in practice when the church gathers? Paul's had to teach the church, love's better than gifts. The body's more important than individual parts. Men and women have got different roles. Some gifts are more important than others. But now as we come to the end, we answer the question, well, what does this look like when we meet together? What, what's this like practically? And inevitably, as we, as we look, there's going to be some overlap with, with the, the, last, the, the, the beginning of chapter 14 that Chris talked about last week. I thought Chris handled it really well. But remember, as we come to this passage, the emphasis, Paul's not talking here about your personal times of worship. Paul's talking about what happens when we gather as the church, when the body comes together. And, and particularly what we're thinking about is the gifts. How are the gifts being practiced as the, as the church gathers? So let me explain a couple of terms 
to you that will help you think this through. Some people believe that the spiritual gifts that we read about in 1 Corinthians, prophecy and tongues, etc., that they're still at work today. And so we should expect to see them weekly in the gathered life of the church. Those people are called continuationists. They believe the gifts have continued. Generally, not always, but generally they're also called charismatic. Some people believe that the spiritual gifts that we read of in 1 Corinthians, that they were for the New Testament church, and once that the, the whole canon of Scripture was, was completed, um, that we shouldn't generally expect now to see the gifts in operation in the church. And those people are called cessationists. The gift, they think the gifts have ceased. Generally, but not always, they're also considered to be conservative. And there are extremes on both sides. And there are godly people on both sides. And one question is, well, which view is right? Do the gifts still operate today? Should we expect to see them or should we not? I'm not going to tell you. You have to work it out. I've always lent, not in a regimental way, but I've always lent towards, I don't expect the gifts to be practiced in the general life of the church. But here's the thing, as I've looked at this passage, and I've tried to be honest with myself, it's challenged me. Not necessarily to completely change my view, but at least to see there are people who love Jesus just as much as me who take a different view. And as well to think that what we understand by when we see people practicing what we think of a gifts is very different from what Paul talks about here. So in this passage, Paul doesn't look at the abuse of the spiritual gifts and say, stop using them. I wish he did, because it would have fitted in with my theology a bit better. But instead, Paul says, there's been abuse of the spiritual gifts, so use them properly. Paul's saying, at, at the very least, he's saying to the church at Corinth, you decide whether it's for now, but he's saying to the church at Corinth, the misuse of spiritual gifts doesn't mean the non-use of spiritual gifts. That's the bit that's got me a little bit frazzled. Just because something's used badly by some people doesn't mean it shouldn't be used at all. So having said all that, whether you take the view that the gifts continue or whether you think that the gifts have, have ceased, this passage gives us brilliant principles of how we should behave when the church gathers. Let me ask you a question to get us going. Um, what would you rather have, anarchy or tyranny? Some people want anarchy. So you have some political movements that, that they state that um, they don't want any police, they don't want any politicians, they don't want any laws. We'll decide what we do. There are some individuals uh, and they don't want people telling them what to do. They want freedom. And it can sound appealing, can't it? Anarchy. We have freedom. Who'd want to live in a society like that, though? Where people can just do what they want. There's no rules. There's no framework, there's no structure. Imagine going for a drive in a, in a an anarchic society. Any, everyone chooses which side of the road they want to drive on. Anarchy would bring chaos. Anarchy would bring disorder. Anarchy would bring disaster. So people see that and it's rightly they say, oh, we can't have chaos, we need order. And then they go on to say, we need tyranny. And that's what they get, a society like North Korea. Lots of order in North Korea, but no freedom. 
Roads are lovely and safe in North Korea, but you wouldn't want to go on them. So what we need is order, but within that order we need freedom. And it can be like that when we think about the church. When we look at the church, we see extremes of charismatic chaos. And you go into a church and you think, this place is nuts. And you go to some churches and it's conservative tyranny. This place is regimented. Now, the challenge to charismatic churches isn't to turn them into conservative churches. The challenge for them is to realize there must be order or you get chaos. But the challenge to conservative churches is this, we mustn't be quick to rule everything out. We mustn't be stuffy. We get scared, don't we, as conservative Christians? We, we can get scared when someone talks about the Spirit. One of my biggest fears has been what to do if somebody stands up and speaks out in tongues or in prophecy in the service. Don't do it. We'll, we'll see later there's an order. But why am I so scared? Well, the Holy Spirit hasn't done anything wrong. He's not unstable. The, the problem is there's been some terrible misuses and abuses of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the practice of the gifts. People have taken spiritual gifts and used them in a way that was never, ever intended, that looks nothing like what was practiced in 1 Corinthians. But I wonder if on the other side, that if, if as conservative churches, we've overreacted a little bit. Any mention of the gifts or the Spirit and, and almost as a bit of suspicion. So the gathered church mustn't be chaotic, but neither should it be regimented and dry. And that's a real challenge. And what Paul does brilliantly in this chapter, as he does in loads of places, he walks a really well-balanced line between two extremes. And as he does that, I think that from verse 26 to 40, we see three things. So as I say, I'm not arguing for any position today. Whatever view you take, this is true. The gathered church, as we gather, we've got to be inclusive. We've got to have priorities. And there's got to be order. So first of all, we say the gathered church must be inclusive. Does that sound a little bit woke? And what do we mean, inclusive? Sounds like something the BBC would say, wouldn't it? Well, we see it particularly in verse 26. Paul says, when the church gather together, some bring a psalm, some bring a tongue, some bring a teaching, some bring a revelation, some bring an interpretation... Even in chapter 11, Paul refers to women covering their heads, but he says, cover your heads when you pray or prophesy in the church. So whatever view we take on head covering, what's clear is that women and men were involved in the service. The church at Corinth, in some ways, it would have looked a lot different to our church service today. But church members were in, in, encouraged to be involved in the services. It wasn't just one person up the front all the time, like it has been today with me, but that's not being deliberate. But it's a challenge as we think about this here. See, we believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. That it shouldn't just be about the pastor, but the pastor has to lead. But it's good and it's right for different people to be involved in the gathered worship. A church service is it's not a performance to watch. 
where one person stands up and we watch. It's a fellowship to engage in. The problem at Corinth is that not that it wasn't inclusive, they were very inclusive, but they were including the wrong things. And we realize, because Paul tells us, he says not everyone can preach, not everyone can teach, not everyone can lead, but that doesn't mean that people can't do anything. Forget spiritual gifts for a moment. We ask the question as a church, are we inclusive? Are our services an event or a performance that you attend? Do we, do we treat them like that? Or, or are we involved in the life of the church? You're probably not involved up front because in a medium-sized church, it's inevitable most people won't be up the front. But are we involved in the life of the church? Do we help people to be involved in the life of the church? So the first thing Paul says is, look, listen, the gathered church must be inclusive. And that's different to, to a lot of the model that we, we have as churches. One bloke stood up the front doing everything. The, the church, as we gather, it's not an event to be watched. That's, what, that's why live stream's great if you can't get to church. But the best is for the gathered church. Because live stream's just a, an event that you watch. This is a fellowship that we gather in. So the church has got to be inclusive as we gather. The second thing is we've got to have our priorities straight. If you follow what Paul says in verse 26, immediately after, after he says, people, come and bring your gifts and be included, he says, but let all things be done for edification. Reading between the lines, what did Paul know? Paul knew that a lot of the things that were being done when the Corinthian church gathered weren't being done to build up the body. They were being done to build up the ego. See, the church at Corinth were inclusive, but they were too inclusive. They were including things and people wrongly. We can see churches like that today, can't we? Very inclusive, but include all the wrong things. And so as the church, as they gather in Corinth, and as we gather here this morning, we must have a priority as we come together. What, what is it that we're trying to do this morning? What is it that I'm trying to do? What's the main aim of our time here today? We, we know it's to worship Jesus, but what's our main aim What's my main aim for, for you? Is it that we see our friends? Well, that's, that's good. Nothing wrong with coming to church. Now I'm, I'm, going, I'm looking forward to seeing my friends or to catch up. There's, there's nothing wrong in a sense with saying, I'm going to church because one of the reasons is when I go to church, it, it makes me feel better. Well, that, that's, that's great. But we've got to have a priority. We've got to have an aim when we come to church. We've got to have a plan. We don't just come along to church and see what happens. I don't think, you know what? I'll just turn up this morning and see what happens. We don't just have a free-for-all in the church, do we, where, you know, if someone wants to say something, stand up and say it. If someone wants to do something, stand up and do it. That's what seems to be happening in Corinth. But Paul's mega clear. As we gather, he says, all things must be done to edify. And later he'll say, oh, it needs to be with order. Edify means it's build up. All he says everything we do as a church is to build up the body. Everything we do as a gathered church is to lead people into godliness. So the young lady with a lovely voice who, who sings at the front, not you, Lisa, or leads a song, well, is she doing it to encourage and build up the body so we can sing together, or is she trying to be Mariah Carey? The person who, who, who will stand up and speak in tongues and say, thus says the Lord and, and speaks in tongues, are they drawing attention to Jesus or themselves? The person who's got a wise word of prophecy, is it to build the body up or is it to build their ego up? 
Some people are very good at making themselves look humble and wise. As we think about our church services, our gathered church, this morning is edifying. Are you being edified this morning? Are you being built up? Because if not, I'm doing something wrong. So you go to some churches and you watch a performance. It's not edifying. Very professional, but it's not edifying. But you go to other churches and you watch a dull, lifeless lecture and miserable singing, and that's not edifying either. As we worship, are we building up the church body? One of the, one of the things Paul talks, he, he talks about all through the passage, is, is our worship intelligible? You know, if someone from outside, if, if a newcomer came in, would they understand what's going on? Am I speaking in a way, they might not understand everything, but am I speaking in a way that they would grasp something about Jesus? What would people see if, 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 if someone from the street who's never been to church before came into our service this morning, what would they see? Would they be able to see what's going on, pass what's going on and see that we're about promoting Jesus? Or would they see chaos in some churches? Or would they see stuffiness in other churches? And that make them not see Jesus. So the priority that uh, as we meet, Paul says this, we say this, the priority as the gathered church meets is that we clearly proclaim and model Jesus. And we build people up in faith. That's Paul's argument all the way through. It's why as we'll see, Paul prioritizes prophecy over tongues. Because when someone speaks in tongues, Paul says it edifies you. But when you speak with a prophecy, it edifies the whole church. The Corinthians were prioritizing speaking in tongues above prophecy. In other words, they were, the, the, the Corinthians were doing, they were, they were prioritizing their own expression of worship above God's word being explained. They had the priorities wrong. So edification is the priority. Verse 6, verse 19, verse 25, all talk about how our speech and our gatherings need to be understandable and accessible so they can build people up. That's why Paul prioritizes prophecy over tongues. Tongues don't bring people to faith. I think Paul's actually, as, as we look at this passage, I think he's making an allowance for people to speak in tongues, but I think Paul's leading people to think about tongues more as something they explore in their own private time with God rather than in public worship. So that's the question as we, as we serve, as we lead as we use our gifts and as we use our talents, not does this tick my box, you know, I like this, so we're going to do it in the church, but does, does this build up people in Jesus? Might be a lovely thing to do between you and the Lord, but if it's not building up the church, we don't do it in gathered worship. So the Corinthian church is struggling with how to use the gifts. The church at Albrook's probably isn't. But we don't want to be fusty and dry, do we? So how should we work through things as we meet together and we've got people coming from different backgrounds and with different views? Well, first of all, we include people and the gifts and the talents, but not just anyone and not just anything. We can't have chaos. Secondly, we've got to have priorities straight. Our gatherings have got to have the freedom where we include people and gifts and talents we don't want to be rigid and formal, but our priority has got to be building people up in Jesus. And if it doesn't build people up in Jesus, it doesn't make the cut. Third thing, and this is like the main thing really, is that 
that Paul focuses on is when the church gathers, we must have order. So the church's got to be inclusive, the church's got to have priorities. The church must have order. And this is where everything comes together. Gathered worship isn't a free-for-all. Now, maybe when you think of the charismatic movement, you don't think, the first thing that comes to mind isn't order. One of the commentaries, in fact, the best commentary I've read, I've read loads of commentaries while we've been going through 1 Corinthians, the best one I've read is by a, a charismatic pastor. Charismatic with a small c. But he said this about the charismatic movement that he belongs to. He says, many charismatic churches have practiced the gifts in a way that's caused damage because it's not biblical, it's chaos. And it becomes a free-for-all. You know, everyone standing up and everyone saying something, there's people speaking over people. Paul will have none of that. Whether you, whether you want to practice the gifts still or not, Paul will have none of that. He says there must be order. When people are fitting on the floor and when people are clucking like chickens and when 30 people are praying out loud at the same time and nobody can understand anything they're saying, that's not order. Even if you're continuationist, that's not what Paul's talking about. It's not edifying. That builds nobody up. In fact, if an unbeliever walked in, they'd walk straight back out, and so would I. So remember that the immediate context is spiritual gifts in a gathered church, but the wider context is how do we govern ourselves regardless of our view on the gifts. And Paul gets to the practical working out of this. He spends most of his time talking about the need for order. You see, when we think about spiritual freedom and inclusivity and opening things up, that doesn't mean chaos. It doesn't need to be spontaneous. I realize it's not exactly the kind of prophecy that Paul's talking about, and I'll explain that in a minute. In a way, I'm prophesying today. It's not exactly the same, but, but I'm speaking prophetically because I'm opening up the Bible, and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to speak through me as I speak. It's not infallible prophecy, but neither was the prophecy in Corinth. In Corinth, it had to be weighed up. But as I prophesy in that sense today, it's not spontaneous. The Lord might put things on my mind as I'm preaching, but I've studied, and I've thought things through, and I've prayed, and the Spirit's led me, and now I'm sharing. Somebody might in some churches share a word of wisdom and it might be drivel that they've just come up with but someone might have spent all week meditating on a verse feeling that a situation's been laid on their heart and they ask can I share this and verse 31 their prophecy had been weighed up says Paul by two or three godly people and if it fits they're allowed to share it that's very different, isn't it, from someone standing up and saying, thus says the Lord. And in this context, Paul talks in verse 27 about someone who speaks in a tongue. He says their words should be weighed. And if there's nobody who understands it, then it shouldn't be said. So it seems to me here this, that it's not about someone speaking out in, in a tongue and then saying, is there anyone who can interpret it? It should be, the interpretation should come before it's shared. I'm not so sure that would have been spontaneous. As I said before, people were allowed to share. The words had to be weighed up to see if they were biblical and edifying. 
That's very different, isn't it, from the model we see of people just shouting out. As I said, I, I believe Paul's leading people to think more of tongues as a personal thing with the Lord. But he's saying, look, if you do have them in the gathered meeting, it's got to be regulated. There's got to be order. It can't be ten people speaking over one another. It says only two or three, not at the same time. And before it goes public, make sure it's biblical. Now, again, whichever side you fall on, that would get rid of 95% of what's called prophesying and tongues in churches today, wouldn't it? If everything had to be checked, if everything had to be spoken one at a time, if everything had to go through the elders or godly people in the church first. So Paul didn't want to quench the spirit, but he says there must be order. And as we think about order, there's three ways that Paul helps us think through it as we wrap up. Three ways that our gatherings are to be ordered. Self, sex, and scripture. Self. We've touched on this. Paul doesn't want to quash, Paul doesn't want to quench the Holy Spirit. Far from it. But Paul knows what people are like. And we know what people are like. So Paul says there's got to be regulations. If the gifts are to be used, this is how you've got to use them. And he says it's got to be with self-control. Verse 28, verse 30, verse 34. All make the point. If certain conditions aren't met, stay quiet. Just because you want to say something doesn't mean you should. And that goes against, again, that goes against a whole lot of church's practices, doesn't it? If the Spirit leads, you stand up and say it. Paul said no. Spiritual gifts aren't if you've got it, flaunt it. If somebody in the church has an outburst of prophecy or tongues and says, I couldn't help myself, well, that's not from God. Because the gifts are to be practiced with self-control. If there's no clear interpretation by yourself or other people, Paul says, stay quiet. If you haven't brought your word of wisdom to be recognized before godly people to be weighed up, keep silent. See, there's order and there's self-control when Paul talks about the gifts. Nobody's speaking over anybody else. Nobody's just standing up and launching into a prophecy or tongues. Because the gifts of the Spirit will never fight against the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So if someone's rolling about on the floor, or if someone's running down the front like the price is right, or if someone's sounding like a cow in labor, that's not self-control. That's not the Holy Spirit. Self-control might feel the urge, but might say, no, it's got to be weighed first. Second is sex. Paul's spoken about the role of women as the church gathers in. Uh, he, he spoke about it in 1 Timothy as well. In 1 Timothy, Paul makes it very clear, a woman should not be in a place of spiritual authority in the church or preach. But in 1 Corinthians 11, while he's making the point there should be a distinction between the sexes, he says women are allowed to pray and prophesy in the church under certain conditions. Now, what that made me realize, I'm studying it this week, is prophecy, as Paul's talking about it here, prophecy can't mean preaching. Because Paul's mega clear, only men can preach, but he does say women can prophesy. I think when Paul talks about prophecy, he's talking about a word of wisdom given to somebody to share with the church to build them up. I think it's a low-key thing. A word of wisdom given to somebody to share with the church to build them up. It's not preaching. It's not authoritative because it has to be weighed before it's shared. 
but there's order. When Paul said in verse 34, I don't permit a woman to speak in the church, he can't mean women be silent in the church. Otherwise, he wouldn't have allowed them to pray or prophesy in the church, as he's already said they can. I think it's this, that Paul's saying, listen, when, when there's these prophecies, the women are not to be vocal in the, in the weighing up and, and teaching of God's word in the gathered church. Any prophecy had to be weighed up, probably by the elders, I think, before it was shared. That's different from what passes as prophecy today. And most importantly, what's the, what's the test we have of anything if, if someone wants to share something? It is scripture. It's the big one. Everything we do as a church has got to be regulated by scripture. In fact, spiritual people, spirit-filled people, are people who love scripture and come under its authority. In, in verse 37, Paul says, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things which I write to are commandments of the Lord. He's saying, look, if you think you're spiritual, if you think you're gifted, remember scripture. We can't just say or do things in church because we think it's good. It's got to be Biblical. Scriptural people, sorry, spiritual people will always be under the authority of Scripture, even if we don't like what it says. A spiritual person isn't somebody who says, the Bible says this, God's telling me this. That's not the Holy Spirit. I've heard people say things like this, you probably have. I feel that the Lord's leading me to da-da-da-da-da. Or I feel that the Lord's leading me to a different church. And it's not always the case, but... Sometimes the reason for them to, to be leaving isn't anything to do with the Lord leading them. It's because they're about to be exposed in something. The Corinthians thought that, that their gifts of wisdom carried as much weight as the Bible. And that's why Paul said in verse 36, effectively, the gospel didn't begin with you lot. That's why he launched in, in chapter 15 to this amazing summary of the gospel, what the gospel is. Some people might, I've heard this, some people might say, God's revealed something new to me. I doubt it. It might have helped to understand something. And when people say God's revealed something new to me, it almost always ends up being followed by a heresy. If it doesn't fit into the framework of the Bible, it's not from God. God doesn't reveal things to people that contradict the Bible. And there's been people who've left the evangelical community because God's revealed something that's outside of what we know to be Scripture. That's not the Holy Spirit. See, it's Scripture and our attitude towards Scripture. That's what protects the church. Now, we're not going to do this. I'm still a bit more towards the cautious side. But if we were to allow somebody this morning to share a prophecy or a word with the leaders, then we weigh it up and we think, yeah, that's in, keep that's in keeping with Scripture. That's, that's, that's edifying. And we allow two or, people to, two or three people to share in that on a Sunday that wouldn't damage, ultimately, the church. Our views on whether the gifts are still in circulation today, you might be someone who's cessationist, you might be someone who's continuationist, you might not have made up your mind. That's not going to bring down the church. We should be able to have people in here on both sides and, and in the middle. That shouldn't, that shouldn't cause us to divide or bring problems. 
the thing that will bring down the local church is our attitude to Scripture and whether we're prepared to submit to Scripture. See, we can't just say whatever we want about gender and sexuality and morality. We can't say, well, God's, God's telling us we need to accept this. God's telling us he's made these people and we've got to just bring them in. No, we have to say, lovingly, the Bible says. Everything the church does, we've got to be able to argue, either as an absolute or a principle, the Bible says. And so how this would work practically, I think, is this. That if someone felt that they had a word from the Lord or a prophecy, take it to the leaders, let them weigh it up. Is it scriptural? Is it edifying? And maybe it could be shared. The more dangerous one for me, or frightening one, is if, what, what if someone came and said, I've got a word in a tongue. Well, Paul would say, well, before it's shared, let it be interpreted, because we need to know what it means. Is it scriptural? Is it edifying? And Paul would let him share it. So what's this going to look like for us? Are we going to change and have a time of open prophecy and tongues next week? No. Don't come and shout out. Maybe you could come and share, share it with us, let us weigh it up. But this transcends gifts. As we gather as a church, we want to be inclusive, we want to be welcoming, we want to involve different people in worship. Not just so we tick boxes, we've got to prioritise ministry that builds up the church. It'd be helpful to, for us to think through. Again, I'm, like I said, we've not got any changes planned, don't worry. But we think, what in, what in this church can we not allow to change? As we gather for worship, what can we not allow to change? But what could we change? Because that shows us what our priorities are. So there's got to be, all, there's got to be inclusivity, there's got to be priorities, there's got to be order in the local, local church. Order doesn't quash freedom. Order makes freedom safe. You're free to drive on the roads and enjoy a day out on, on, a, on a road trip because there's rules of the road that make it, your freedom safe. The questions are this, are our lives becoming increasingly governed by scripture or by how we feel? And that's a big thing at the moment, isn't it? Personally, what, what, what's having more authority on our lives, our desires and our feelings or God's word? Are our gatherings, you, you talk about seeker-sensitive, seeker-sensitive is where we do everything to, to make people, you know, uh, feel welcome and included. But we're not to go that far. But are our gatherings more about making people feel good or excellence or professionalism than about building people up through his word. I'm going to sum up, I'm going to give the final word to one of my new charismatic mates. And he says this. He says, let me summarise. When you come to church, your concern should be constructive to be constructive to other believers and convicting to unbelievers. If that's what you're going to do, worship must be intelligible. 
The music and language must have meaning to those who come, not just to those who are speaking or playing. Secondly, worship must be balanced. There mustn't be too much of one gift. Thirdly, worship must be orderly, not chaotic. Fourthly, worship must be shared so that it comes from all of us and we contribute. And fifthly, worship must be real so that the outsider goes away saying, God is really there. And it's that last sentence that struck me. When we meet, we want people, if, if, someone, if an unbeliever comes in, we want them to go away saying, there was something different, God was there. That's what we want. We want people to go away and say, God is really there. We don't want an argument for gifts. We don't want, we don't want to be chaotic. We don't want to be stiff. We want people to come to the church and say, God's there. Is there in our preaching? Is there in our singing? Is there in our worship? Is there in our fellowship? Is there in our conversations? And in many ways, I think the rest had sorted itself out. Let me pray for us as we think about that. Father, we thank you that your word challenges us. We ask, Lord, that as we speak about your Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be people who quench him. But also, Lord, we wouldn't be people who take liberties. Father, we want to come under your authority and your rule because we know it's best for us. We want, we want to include people. But Lord, we also want to honour you and have order. So help us to think this through, Lord. Challenge us. Help us to realise, Father, the importance of belonging to the local church body. And Father, we ask that by your spirit you would edify us. You would build us up to be more and more like Jesus. Amen. As we close, we're going to sing a song that, that reminds us of our need daily for the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives. Let's stand and sing.
Father, that is our prayer this morning, that in our unity, the face of Christ may be clear for all the world to see. Speaking the truth in love, may we grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Father, make this an increasing reality in our lives and our gathered worship, we pray. Amen.